5G, online privacy, net neutrality, new set of commissioners in the FTC, and then they've kicked off this process reviewing the digital economy. Those are a couple of things I hope that we cover, or, you know, I can just put some markers out there. I hope what we'll do today is, you know, this this audience, I think they are savvy people, you know, some are don't know all the issues, but to get them to think, I, that's really what I hope to accomplish. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. To kick off the year, MIT's Technology Review did something they've done every year since 2001. They picked 10 breakthrough technologies to watch in the coming years. Those breakthroughs varied from 3D metal printing to artificial embryos to ubiquitous and affordable artificial intelligence and everything in between. We're not going to go through the entire list and rank how those predictions turned out or what we think is going to happen next year, but we are going to bring our own technology policy experts on the show to get their take on the biggest tech developments of 2018, why they matter, and what to watch for in 2019. Here to wax nostalgic about the year behind us and peer into the future of the year ahead, we have a couple of experts on tech policy. First, we're joined on the phone by Rosalind Layton, visiting scholar with the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome back to the show, Rosalind. Great to be with you. Thanks. And next, we also welcome back Jennifer Skies, Research Fellow here at Mercatus. Glad you could join us again as well, Jennifer. Thanks for having me today, Chad. My first question here is kind of an obvious way to start a question like this. And it's just for me to ask both of you to give me, in your opinion, the single biggest technology development or innovation of 2018 that prompt is intentionally open-ended and vague, but you do have to stick to one, at least for this question. We'll get to the laundry list later, but get, just give me the biggest, most important tech development of 2018 right off the bat. Well, I'm going to go with a broader category, but I'm still going to count it as one on you. (laughs) Um, And I would say the future of transportation. 2018 has really been the year where the future of transportation in many ways has gone from this science fiction, it'll get here at some point, to a reality. And it's been various technologies that we've really seen take off this year. So this week alone, we had Waymo launching its first driverless taxi service out in Arizona. We've been seeing the scooters and other dockless micromobility really popping up in cities across the country and kind of taking that last mile problem and providing multiple solutions that really empower people to figure out how they want to get from point A to point B. And we're seeing a lot of really exciting developments on the path towards VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing devices, or literally flying cars. So I think when we look back, we'll really see this as kind of the year that this next transportation revolution really got off the ground. I love that example. I think it's very exciting. And, you know, MIT does a great job. What I would say that 2019 is really about is I think we're going to look back in 20 years and we're going to talk about what happened this year at the Federal Trade Commission. And uh, Jennifer's absolutely right that it is um, all these innovations in science and technology that are happening all the time. But we as consumers uh, don't get to use them if regulation is standing in the way. And I think Mercatus listeners are, are, can realize that, you know, federal policy, state policy, it can either, it can support new innovation, it can, it can hold it in place, or it can stop it altogether. So all of these wonderful things with transportation, they may be there, but, you know, do we get to enjoy them? So one of the things uh, that happened this year, uh, we have a, a new chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, Joe Simons, and a full set of commissioners. And they have launched a process that hasn't been done in 20 years, was to look at the digital economy uh, and to see, you know, what new things do we need to consider? Is the market competitive? Are there regulations holding in place? Are there antitrust issues? What does it mean for online privacy, artificial intelligence? And, you know, this is an important process because we now have 
as much as we enjoy innovation, a lot of regulators look at it and say, hey, this is an opportunity for us to put our stamp on things and decide how it's going to be used. So we need to have a process where we get all of the stakeholders in play to, to make those arguments either way. And, you know, we hope that we have the free market arguments can win, but we have to get it on the table and have those discussions. And the Federal Trade Commission has launched a multi-month, multi-stakeholder process to have all of those discussions because we have now everybody, every state, every entity, locality, they want to have a piece of the, the transportation economy. They want to have revenue from it or control it, tax it, whatever it may be. And if we don't have our federal regulators get all this on the table, you know, I, I fear we may never have those innovations because they'll be picked away by regulators all along the chain. I think one of the exciting things we're seeing on that front is that we do have some regulators, at least, that are recognizing how great innovation has been for consumers and how great it is for everyday Americans. And so rather than having that initial precautionary reaction of what do we need to do to make sure that this is 100% safe before it's tested, you're seeing a different regulatory approach that, to use Adam Thier's you know, title, it's more permissionless innovation, where you're seeing soft law, where you're seeing working groups and industry standards and really more of a framework that's recognizing that these innovations could save lives, could make lives better. I would point to the Department of Transportation standards on autonomous vehicles. This is kind of the prime example of soft law and one of the areas where we've seen a change, not necessarily specifically in 2018, but when the first set of guidance came out on autonomous vehicles, a lot of the things proposed were rather restrictive and would have probably slowed down this process. But starting with version 2.0 that we saw last year in 2017, and now version 3.0 that we saw just a few months ago, we've really seen an approach that's a little more of a a step back and providing a framework and looking at how do we make this innovation possible. So let me piggyback on that. If I'm not mistaken, there's an excellent paper from Mercatus. I'm not sure. I think if you were the, you were one of the authors, Jennifer, with Adam, but you talk about the role of multi-stakeholder model in in uh, the innovation and regulatory process. And it's absolutely correct that we have used multi-stakeholder model in many ways, and it's been used around the world to help innovation come to the public without, you know, having regulators hold it back, but in a way that uh, the various stakeholders involved, you can address the concerns about safety or uh, reliability, and you can test and learn, if you will, and those are, you know, those are models that, that have been used successfully on net neutrality. They can be used on privacy. They've been used on SMS in many areas and absolutely in transportation. Certainly, we've had some wisdom along the way that uh, that is allowing the proven governance models to, to be deployed in these cases. So I'm going to step in as the only person I think in this conversation that doesn't have a JD or a PhD and ask for a couple of definitions. So I think we got some really interesting terms out there that I'd love to hear you all just in your in your own words, kind of how would you describe them? Uh, maybe soft law and multi-stakeholder process. It sounds like these are really important ways in which policymakers think about innovation. So I just want to give our, our listeners the opportunity to kind of dive into those terms. And you guys can, you know, pick one or you can both chime in on both. But soft law and multi-stakeholder processes, what do those really mean to you guys and why are they important to innovation? So I'm going to, I'll give my definition. I think a multi-stakeholder model is something you learn on the schoolyard. Um, there's a there's a teacher at the school, there are kids on a playground, and we kind of learn how to have a system of order 
in our world, and you know, you you'll find you know where you have various friendships or the things that go on. Is somebody a tattletale? Is someone a bully? And there's kind of a a process that goes on is as the actors learn from one another. There is a teacher in the background who can come in and, and bring order, but as opposed to the teacher there having to be there mediating every conversation, there is a way that that we have to learn, and that is how you know different stakeholders can come together. In practice. We have extremely high-level, international, detailed, multi-stakeholder models on major things like Internet governance, where you have literally tens of thousands of different actors. It doesn't matter whether you're an individual or a nation-state or a church or a school or a major Fortune 500 company. Everybody gets a seat at the table and gets, and you know, no one person is more important than the other. And that model has been um, has been very successful in terms of the evolution of the Internet and uh, it has kept the control out of, let's say, repressive governments because the different voices have been heard. And I think soft law in some ways is easier to describe by what it's not. And that's that it's not hard law. It's not formal legislation. It's not formal or informal rulemaking. So it's not agencies issuing you know, regulations. It's instead when there are recommendations or letters or guidance documents, and it's almost hard to list all the different ways that we see kind of these agencies interacting with innovators or with consumers, but not necessarily issuing a truly top-down, this is the rule and this is what you must obey. So as a result, it can be a way when technology is moving very fast in certain sectors right now to provide a little bit of certainty, a little bit of guidelines, a little bit of a sense of this is not going to be declared illegal tomorrow, but at the same time, exercising some regulatory humility of a we don't know where this innovation is necessarily going to go next. And the last thing we want is to prevent a beneficial use. Maybe that's a good point to transition uh, back to something you both mentioned earlier, this idea of a digital economy. So to me, the idea of a digital economy means I'm probably going to do all my Christmas shopping or at least 90% of it online this year. Uh, Not all that different from last year. Different from last year, I have finally joined the ranks of 21st century mobile phone users and I now have a payment app on my phone. I've never used it yet, but it's there. And so I think I have similar questions that maybe a lot of our listeners have when it comes to this idea of a digital economy, which is how do we secure sort of user privacy, right? I think that's been one of the biggest concerns. The technology seems to be advancing just fine. It seems, at least from a layperson's perspective, that either our cultural norms or our laws or maybe both regarding privacy uh, haven't quite caught up. Uh, So I'm kind of curious from your all's perspective, was 2018 sort of a good year for for digital privacy? Was it a bad year for digital privacy? Or or what might we expect to see in 2019? I'm glad you bring up that issue. That has really been one of the the key issues in 2018. And it's going to go, there's a, there's really, um, I think it's very positive. There's a bipartisan process in Congress to update our privacy rules and standards, if you will. Uh, But the interesting thing is uh, President Obama put this on the table in 2012 and Silicon Valley wasn't interested to talk about it. They kind of, they basically torpedoed it. And here we are six years later where everybody kind of agrees at that baseline that is that we have to have these kind of set up standards for transparency, user control, accountability, and so on. That policy talked about multi-stakeholder model. It also had something very important, which was the ability to preempt the states, because otherwise we'll have 50 sets of privacy rules. We won't, we will we'll kill our digital economy. But it's absolutely important that we have a sense of trust. The digital economy is about 10% of our GDP in the United States. It's one-third of the world's technology economy is just what goes on in the U.S., 
So it's a huge part, not just of our own economy, but the global economy. And what you could argue is, you know, we've actually had a lot of success today and we've enjoyed, we've created new industries. We enjoy all these wonderful things online. There are concerns around things like, let's say, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but it's not exactly clear that, so for example, rules that were adopted in Europe, it's called the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. Those things don't necessarily stop bad actors because frequently bad actors don't care about regulation. So the the issue then is, you know, what should consumers expect when they go online? And this is the conversation that's been going on through 2018. It has been brought to bear because of these high-profile scandals in the media involving the big tech companies. And, you know, some people are certainly concerned, you know, if I use my data, um, you know, if I give, put my data in the system, what happens to it? So one of the things I advocate is consumers have to take more responsibility through education and that, you know, just as what Jennifer's been talking about, we also have to allow new innovation to come into play because ultimately we want to design better systems because regulation can't protect for every instance of a bad actor. And I think that that's a lot of this. It's really interesting to look at GDPR, what's going on in Europe, is we're about six months out now. And so there's starting to be some data available. And what's actually been seen, particularly in, say, the targeted advertising side, is that some of the smaller players are going away and they're decreasing and that you're having these big tech companies like Google and Facebook be the ones that are able to comply and able to survive these regulations. So I think if we're looking at, you know, what's the next step? What's going to be the next big thing? I always love to point to the headline from about 10 years ago about how Yahoo won the search wars. Um, (laughs) You know, we don't want to prevent whoever the next great innovator is from getting off the ground and providing perhaps a better privacy environment because they couldn't spend the millions of dollars to comply with a regulation or because they were having to spend those millions of dollars on compliance rather than on the innovation. I think another interesting thing with the digital economy, of course, is we're seeing conversations around sales tax online and digital sales tax. But also remembering this is a great kind of connection to the right to earn a living and entrepreneurship in general and occupational licensure issues. So telemedicine and, you know, different people that have shops on Etsy and things like that, that Sometimes occupational licensure can get in the way of people being able to have these economic interactions online. I want to just make one other point because, you know, our listeners might wonder about California because California has adopted uh, its own privacy laws. Now, the interesting thing is California has more privacy laws than any state in, in America, and the Californians don't feel any more safe. But in fact, the California law has even more regulations on business than the European law. And uh, it's billed as something to give consumers control, but it has no element of education or, you know, of of innovation, which would actually help people uh, get a better system. So this is one of the challenges where you have these, you know, it's it's unfortunate that there have been, you know, breakdowns with the large companies. But these things are often seized by regulatory advocates to say, oh, we must clamp down now and, you know, stop this terrible Thing from happening. Meanwhile, ignoring all the benefits that everyone's been enjoying for the last 20, 25 years because of the digital economy. So it's actually an opportunity for education. It's an opportunity for innovation. And, you know, for the companies who want to compete on that they're going to be the better stewards, they have all of the opportunity now to step forward. But to Jennifer's point, 
it's actually uh, what has gone, gone on in Europe. It's costing like $3 million for companies to comply with the European General Data Protection. So over 1,000 companies from the U.S., they've stopped serving their content in the EU. You can't read American newspapers online because it's, they just said we can't afford this to comply. So all, a whole range of American media companies, ad tech companies, they've all exited and Europeans themselves don't say they feel any more safe as a result of these rules being implemented. I do want to get back to some of the, the more optimistic tech developments since we're, we're on. It sounds like privacy is not in a great spot, at least policy wise right now, uh, at least not trending that way. But you guys both seem to be pretty optimistic about transportation technology kind of at the top of the show. And I want to make sure we, we get back to that a little bit. What is going into 2019, maybe the biggest roadblock at, at this point thinking? And, and that could be a technological roadblock. Is it just that our cities aren't designed for everyone to have a flying car? Or is it a policy roadblock? Are there some sort of antiquated regulations that kind of keep innovators from innovating? What needs to happen in 2019 to kind of take the great things we've seen in transportation technology and and make that next step? I think a lot of it is just time in some ways. These are on the right track and making sure that they aren't derailed. We do have autonomous vehicle legislation being handled primarily at a state level right now. We're probably getting close to that point of Do we have too much of a patchwork? And obviously the next phase has to be that you can get in an autonomous vehicle and go from the Grand Canyon to Disneyland. And if California and Arizona have completely different standards on what is and isn't legal in terms of operating these autonomous vehicles, then that could cause trouble for innovators. And we saw Audi say they weren't going to bring their level three car over in part because of some of this concern about regulatory uncertainty because it's handled by so many different areas. That being said, we're still seeing a lot of entrepreneurship and a lot of innovation in micromobility, which is more of the question of how are cities structured to deal with things like scooters, to deal with dockless bike share, because we're seeing that consumers respond really well to this, that particularly in, say, the D.C. area where we're all based out of right now, there are many companies competing and people are constantly clamoring for more choices. On the other hand, we've seen Regulators continue on the same path in some cases that they did with Uber and Lyft when they started. So it's been really kind of interesting to watch that play out. And I think you'll see more kind of different cities using that to establish themselves as cities of the future. Of You'll have cities that take this really innovation-promoting um, approach where they're willing to work with the innovators and come up with a system to let consumers try these new products. And you'll have cities that s- stick to kind of the 20th century transportation options. So let me, uh, I would like to to add on that when you look at uh, networks and infrastructure, which I think is a crucial part of transportation, particularly with autonomous vehicles. And it's what are we doing at the local level to get networks deployed? And that has to do with uh, the next generation of wireless technologies, improving the backhaul, helping to get the uh, next level of networks to everybody. And so on the positive side, 20 states have come together and, and said, we want to adopt a model code to help wireless technologies in our states. And I think that's fantastic because if you're a company who wants to deploy, you know, what's called 5G, it's the fifth generation mobile standard, it's 100 times faster than 4G. You don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every single time you go to a new state or a new city or negotiate what's the price going to be to attach your uh, cell to the pole. Um, so, so that's been positive that, say, at least half the states are on board. Uh, to Jennifer's point, there are certainly states 
for cities particularly who sort of see, hey, this is a revenue opportunity. We've mismanaged our city for years, and now let's shake down the local uh, network providers so we can earn some money to pay our debts or, you know, to help fund the city services. That's a really unfortunate thing because, you know, people want to have these new technologies. They want to have competition for their broadband. They want to have, um, you know, all these great products and services. So we, we definitely see forward thinking states. And, you know, interestingly, they're in the heartland particularly because a lot of the new things that we'll get from 5G will be industrial applications in agriculture, manufacturing, energy, and so on. In addition to things like, you know, being able to cut the cord for broadband and use a wireless technology to get all the all your internet at home. But you will have certain cities, you know, unfortunately, California cities where they basically say, hey, oh, we want to charge whatever we want for a company to access our telephone poles and thinking that's somehow a market when in fact the city has monopoly on infrastructure. And so whether they are going to look at the marketplace as a, a partnership opportunity to work with the service providers, the uh, who want to do the new technologies, or are they going to be the sort of gatekeeper and kingpin and decide, you know, we're going to create a monopoly here and only one provider gets to use it. So so we kind of have, we're at this point where are we going to create another Mobel because, you know, that only one company can be able to afford to work with these cities or are we can actually have the opportunity to have multiple four or five, six or seven different providers being able to work in any a community in a rural area because we adopt a fast tracking to be able to roll out infrastructure. And I think 5G is definitely a term that we're all going to hear a lot in 2019. I think that's going to be one of the big stories and one of the areas that we see a lot of technological development on that path in the next year or so. And I, I promise I'm not nearly clever enough to have planned this out when I asked about transportation technology, but it just so happens uh, we've done episodes for those of you who might be interested in learning more either about transportation technology developments. That was just a few weeks ago. And we've also done one, this was back in August, on 5G. So uh, listeners who are interested in kind of diving into those issues specifically can maybe check out those episodes and learn a little bit more. Maybe one of the next places I'd like to shift to as we kind of start to wind down, and this can kind of be maybe an open-ended question. So Jennifer, as you say, you know, we're looking ahead to 2019 now. I'll pitch out the idea of thinking about what big tech companies even look like in 2019. So you guys have both mentioned Facebook, Uber, Google, and Apple, I think, have all come up. We've had a lot of news about all of those firms, either they're monopolies or they're not monopolies. They need privacy protection, so they don't. What do you all see the state of the tech marketplace looking like in 2019? And again, this can be from you, you see new companies emerging and displacing these companies, or you see new policies changing the way uh, tech companies interact. But put on your, your futurist hat for just a second and, and give us some predictions about what, what the tech marketplace might look like. Well, when I think about 5G, we do think about a lot of the mobile carriers, you know, uh, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile. But what I would say, and of course, you know, the Google and Facebooks and Amazon, but, you know, they're sort of the traditional players. But when we look at 5G, it's not a foregone conclusion that those are going to be the players that necessarily win, because the there's a lot we don't know. And, you know, the business models are not totally certain. So one of the challenges, let's say, for mobile carriers is that, the amount of data that we use, it continues to increase, but the prices we pay for unit costs continue to fall. So, you know, they have, have a business in which the, the quality keeps going up, the speeds keep going up, and data keeps going up, but the price we pay is falling all the time. So it makes infrastructure deployment for them very difficult. 
And, you know, this is one of the reasons that, you know, it's important that we have a, a, a policy that keeps the cost low and helps everybody get access to the networks. But that's also an interesting situation that there may be new, you know, the, the kinds of companies that, that are going to emerge on 5G, they may, they're ones we haven't heard of today that will, you know, figure out how to, you know, uh, aggregate and resell data in interesting ways. An interesting 5G company could be like a Tesla, for example. They're like, a, in fact, a mobile carrier because they buy data in bulk for the use in their cars and they're deploying it in different ways as consumers, whether you prepay it when you buy the car, you buy different subscriptions and different services, you're going to act, get in the Tesla. The Tesla is like a smartphone on wheels. So, you know, the different ways that we'll see companies come into play and they may be competing for, you know, the existing incumbents will be very interesting. So I don't know who the companies are, but all I'm going to tell you is I think there'll be ones we haven't heard of. And I think that's the thing about the tech market. There's always going to be some new person or some new company that comes along and gives us the next great innovation. You know, if the famous Henry Ford quote uh, of if I'd asked people what they want, they would have said faster horses. And, you know, it's one of those things we don't necessarily know what we want until somebody shows us that this is something we can't live without. And particularly when it comes to, say, online platforms or transportation or anything, 10 years ago, we would have been having this conversation about MySpace and (laughs) (laughs) Yahoo and... (laughs) What are we going to do about the MySpace monopoly? You know, know, we could have had it 20 years ago about AOL and um, it's one of the things of it can't necessarily be predicted, but we see that somebody finds that idea and it takes off and who knows what a year from now or 10 years from now, we won't have been able to imagine our lives without. Well, and I just want to add something on that since we're talking about transportation. You know, Uber was just getting formed about 10 years ago, but, you know, a lot of the frustration that those founders felt about, you know, how did they, how could they organize their ride? You know, they wanted that the taxi was a terrible experience. And, you know, what taxi regulator was going to create an app that lets you rate the driver, right? Or was it going to help you expose how terrible that taxi ride was. And we found out through technology all the things that people care about, and they ended up being competitive parameters. So whereas the taxi regulator said all taxis must be the same color and we're going to organize on the same price and they're going to regulate every aspect of the taxi ride, they took away all the competitive parameters and the ways that people want to express their preferences that we, it turned out we cared about what kind of car it was or the service or whether we could order in advance or have a baby seat in the car or this, that, or the other thing. So this is one of the, the beautiful things about letting the market evolve is that consumers get to follow their bliss. They get to realize what's important to them, not what's important to regulators. Well, and I think the other element of that is also the the social and cultural norms evolve in that way, too, of to the Uber example of I remember about 10 years ago when Uber had just come to the D.C. area telling my mother I was going to press this button on a phone <laughs> and a car was going to show up and I was going to get in a car with someone I didn't know and trust that it was going to take me to where I needed to go. And being in my early 20s, then you can imagine my mother's response was, do I need to stage an intervention or call the police, you know, type of thing. But now, I think for many of us, this is just natural, and we expect when we're in a mid-sized city or larger to be able to press a button on our phone and have this service work, and the idea that people can use their own cars, and that maybe, particularly with millennials in large cities, that you don't need to own a car because of these services has been kind of a change that we've seen in 
culture over these 10 years that's gone along with the technology. Well, and I, I probably feel this way about most episodes, but this one, perhaps more than any other, I think we could easily sit here another hour. I, you, you all talking about Uber made me think we didn't even get to sort of the labor market ramifications of, you know, the life is different for the drivers of Uber who have a job that didn't exist a few years ago. We didn't have a chance to, to chat about healthcare. So for folks who know that there are all these other exciting areas because tech really does affect every aspect of, of our public policy world and also of our, our lives as consumers and as employees. Where can they go? What You guys do a lot of work on a lot of different issues. Where would you recommend we send our listeners to learn more about the areas we talked about today or, or maybe even some areas we didn't get a chance to, to spend much time on? And, and Rosalind, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, thank you. And, and again, I really appreciate this time today. I've had really a blast talking with both of you. I would like to direct everybody to the American Enterprise Institute. We have a blog on technology. We do a new article every day. It's very short and bite-sized on different tech topics. So I, I blog there. You can see the work that I've done on online privacy, net neutrality, 5G, and other areas. And what I'd say is I'm actually positive about privacy legislation. I think it's a win-win, and we'll see some positive outcomes in 2019. I'd also direct people to a paper I've written on tech policy and the midterms, where I try to you know, look at the history of tech policy, which actually goes back to Alexander Hamilton, who talked about using mechanization as a as a means to end slavery. So we have a long pedigree in the United States around making policy around technology. And, you know, we we can we can do it better all the time. Our tech team here at Mercatus is constantly uh, sending chat articles for uh, the bridge. So <laughs> and that, I always appreciate it. <laughs> so that's uh, mercatus.org slash bridge. That's right, yeah. And uh, then I also blog on Tech Liberation Front, which is another great blog with several different authors from different organizations looking at a lot of different issues, everything from driverless cars to 5G and infrastructure and everything in between that we didn't talk about here. And then I'm on Twitter at JR Huddles. Like I said before, I appreciate both of you offering your expertise. I know our listeners appreciate hearing from you all. And I appreciate you coming back on the show. It didn't scare you off too bad the first time. Uh, and our listeners appreciate you guys tuning in today. We hope that you heard some optimistic things. It's always nice when we're talking about the public policy world to be able to talk about some exciting things that are happening. It's not all doom and gloom. There are good things that are making our lives better every day. Uh, and it turns out there's some public policy changes that can expedite and make smoother that process. So hopefully we'll see those things continue in 2019. So again, thank you to our guests. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you next time. Well, after a riveting conversation on tech policy and tech innovation developments of 2018, I think I could certainly use a beverage. So thank you for joining us, Kate Delanoy, co-host of our What's on Tap segment. We are drinking today New Belgian's Accumulation. It's a white IPA. So I'm going to go ahead and pour that. And while I'm doing so, why don't you let our listeners know what's going on at Mercatus this week? First thing I want to talk about is kind of a shout out for maybe our wonkier audience. We have a new series of essays out edited by our own James Broll on the social discount rate. So for anybody who works in regulatory agencies or does work on cost benefit analysis, definitely recommend this series of essays. You can check that out and find it on our website. And then moving on to something maybe a little bit more light, we have the 12 days of debunked free trade myths. So what that means, my understanding, and you can tell me more, Chad, because you're editing the series. 
our own Christine McDaniel and Veronique DeRuji have put their heads together and come up with what are the 12 biggest myths about free trade. And every day between the 13th and Christmas, we'll be releasing one on the bridge talking about what the myth is, why it's a myth. And I don't know. I mean, do they sing? (laughs) <laughs> There's no singing involved, but the rest of it, you're spot on. We are doing sort of a 12 days of Christmas, 12 days of, of trade myths. And I know some of you are thinking, at least I was at the beginning, aha, but the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas. We know that. We recognize that. But we realize that a lot of you guys are traveling and maybe not doing quite as much policy reading in between Christmas and the start of the new year. So we're going to get an early start and we're going to do the 12 days before Christmas. And each day, we're just going to kind of have another short piece on, hey, here's something that a lot of people think about trade policy that may not quite be so. That sounds good. And if people want to wait until Christmas to start reading, it'll be there. There you go. It'll still be on the bridge. Uh, I actually have something for you as well. Our listeners and readers of the bridge will know that we've been doing a lot on Amazon and their Eastern Shore headquarters, a so-called HQ2 search. One of the things that I think our scholars have talked about a lot is the fact that the subsidies and incentives that a lot of cities and states have tried to offer Amazon and as an effort to bring them to their city weren't necessary. We've got a new piece out from Andrea O'Sullivan and from Michael Farron that talks about, okay, so if it's not the subsidies and incentives that get a big company like Amazon to open up a new headquarters in your city, what is it? And their argument is, well, you just need to make your city more interesting, more livable. And not just saying that, they've got a whole host of recommendations from our state and local policy researchers and their own work that says exactly how to do that. It sounds really cool. And I also saw that Michael Farron had a piece with Ann Philpott that just kind of broke down what uh, New York and Virginia and Tennessee could have gotten for the money that they spent in subsidies for Amazon. And it was over 11,000 full tuition scholarships in New York. Yeah, that was just New York alone. Yeah. So if anyone else is worried about their Christmas spending, you know, <laughs> just know you probably won't be doing that bad. Well, on that cheery note, I am curious as to how you feel about the accumulation. I really enjoy this, and I especially appreciate it after last time's uh, more of a... Unique, creative novel? Yes, all of those things. It's good to be back with something a little bit more comforting, if you will, ahead of... uh, the December season. I really like the uh, the pairing of the white, but also the IPA flavors. So I'm going to say this one is a 4.25 out of five stars. That's outstanding. So I was hoping that would be the case. Again, I know we've talked about this before. You're not the biggest IPA fan. I thought this might be a peace offering along those lines. This is one of my wife and I's favorite kind of go-to IPAs. It's, you know, like you said, it's kind of comforting almost. It's light and crisp, but there's just a little bit of sweetness in there to balance out the citrus hops. Um, New Belgium's winter seasonal, so we always try to pick up a six-pack at some point. This is one of my favorite beers, so I'm going to continue with the theme of being a more generous grader and go with a 4.5 out of 5, but I'm glad that we're both on the same page here. So with that, cheers. 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 